I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying touch them all. Way back and gone. Touch them all, Joe Maurer. And now these guys are making it relevant to this year's Twins. It's a beautiful now, our two resident hardball nerds will attempt to touch them all on the week's news surrounding the Twins in MLB. I didn't know they still had a team. That's baseball. Here's Phil Mackey and Derek Wetmore. It is May 16th, 2017, as we record this episode of the Touch Em All podcast, Derek Wetmore. And the Twins are in first place. The Twins are just slightly ahead of the Indians, who they took two out of three from this last weekend before heading into uh, the homestand. If I would have told you going into your time covering the team in spring training in Fort Myers a few months ago, this team will be in first place halfway through May, almost a quarter of the way through the season. What would your thoughts have been? My first thought would have been what happened to the Indians. They're still kind of the overwhelming favorite. I mean, they stumbled out of the blocks a little bit, and the pitching's been somewhat suspect. But, like, they're kind of back now, so I'm curious to see if they seek their level and it's higher. Um I definitely wouldn't have expected the the Twins to be in the driver's seat. Now, they're going to get some tougher opponents coming up, and there's some regression that's bound to bring some players back. Irvin Santana is one of those. Miguel Sano is another one. Like These great stories, don't get me wrong, great stories through six weeks, and they've been unbelievable. Um, But some of that's going to come back to earth. So I do wonder where it's going to settle in, like how good are the Twins? And, uh, yeah, I guess that's all I would have asked you was, well, what's wrong with Francisco Lindor and Michael Brantley and Corey Kluber and yeah. Andrew Miller? And what you said about Miguel Sano and I, and I threw out Irvin Santana, it's not to take away from what they've done in the first six weeks or to, to pour a bunch of cold water on it or even to say that it was lucky. Miguel Sano, I believe, actually has the highest hard hit percentage in baseball this year so far. So mm-hmm. he's, he's earning his fourth. 30 BABIP or whatever it is, this unsustainable batting average on balls in play. He's probably not a 300 hitter, and he's hitting 297 as we record this. But even if he settles in as a 250 hitter who gets on base at, let's say, a 390 clip instead of a 440 clip and still hits the home runs that he's been hitting, if he hits 35 or 40 home runs, you're going to take that for yeah. the rest of the season. You're going to take that from Miguel Sano. Irvin Santana is the one that I would be a little because I Sano's regression will still be productive. He's still going to produce power in RBIs. Irvin Santana has a FIP over four and an ERA under two. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of room. His left on base percentage is almost a hundred percent of base runners left on. So the key t- against Irvin Santana is to not get on base yeah. because he'll <laughs> be stranded it's there. Solo homers, I guess. I, <laughs> I don't know. Or inside the park homers. I'm not sure what you're supposed well. to do. He he's bound. For some some more starts like the one a week ago sure. when, he, when he gave a bunch of home runs to the Red Sox. That's going to happen some more, I think, before the All-Star break. I, w- I will say, too, and you mentioned that we're not pouring cold water on it, but like kind of a little bit, and we'll move on from that. But I've been accused of being Derek Wet Blanket before in the past, so I will uh, I will cop to that fully. One interesting piece from MLB.com, you know they're doing more stuff with StatCast and trying to push the stats angle. They've hired guys um, like the, the one I'm – specifically going to mention is Mike Petriello, who's who's done some columns based on some of this stuff with Darren. Um, I, always, I always screw up the last name, so I won't say it, but Darren W. These guys that are doing StatCast and Baseball Savant. I follow both on Twitter, and That's I've right. never tried to pronounce their names before. Yeah. 
and, here we are. And, uh, this happens do, a lot. They on take the a lot of the work from base, the baseball savant platform and sort of translate it right. into layman's terms for fans right, to Right, which was Darren's, I believe, was running it. And MLB.com was like, hey, can we hire you? And we'll just take all this stuff in-house. That's awesome. Brilliant. And uh, so anyway, yeah, this happens a lot, trying to pronounce writers. And like, remember when we were talking about Eno Saris? Are like, are there other ones? There's got to be some other ones. Well, one of, one of my favorite authors is, and I think it's pronounced Eckhart Tolle. Tolle, okay. But it could be Tolle. It could be, yeah. it could be Tolle. Never him Tolle. say his name? I just know that he has helped me practice mindfulness and meditation and staying in the now. I tried so to do you, Eckhart. Yeah, Eckhart, whatever your name is. I tried to do this with Pat the other day. Royce, he walked in here, and I was trying to explain to him this Sports Illustrated story from a guy named Jay Jaffe. Yeah, Jaffe. Joff. I've seen him on TV before. He's an MLB Network guy. Yes, too. and I need to like learn once and for Great all mustache. how to pronounce mush, mustache game so strong. How to figure figure out how to pronounce his name once and for all? Because I told Pat I was telling him the story, <laughs> and I don't know what is. I read him all the time. Yeah, follow him on Twitter, and I don't know. What so anyways, his last these name. guys who run baseballsavant.com, <laughs> who we don't know exactly how to pronounce their Carson Sischuli at Fangraphs. <laughs> you go, you go. Uh, to their site every once in a while you see these articles that i feel like five years ago you know you would have only seen in a fan graphs or a you know baseball prospectus publication where you you feel like man this is stuff that's going beneath the surface that it's like it's a secret most people don't know about this and it's great because they're running it on mlb.com now and really blowing it out there the interesting piece that petriello wrote about santana was like is he going to finish at the time, he had a 0.66 ERA, and his not-so-controversial claim was, that's that's going to go up. That's probably going to go up this yeah. year. But you mentioned the 4 fit, and I think his XFIP might be higher than that. I don't know what the level of regression is going to be like for Santana because the thing that he pointed out was that, yeah, Santana's getting really lucky on balls in play, and he's not giving up home runs, and he's not letting base runners score, but... He's also getting an incredible amount of weak contact, really bad, soft, weak contact. So you see his strikeouts per nine, and you think, well, his strikeout numbers are down a little bit this year. But then you dig a little bit deeper than that, and you see his swing and miss percentage is still way mm -hmm. up there. His strikeout rate, the percentage of hitters he strikes out, is still way up there. He's not walking many guys, except, you know, that bad start against the Red Sox, probably notwithstanding. But so his numbers are going to come down. Like he's not going to be the best pitcher in baseball history. But I don't think he has to be a 4.5 ERA guy just because if he's striking out a good number of hitters and when he is getting hit, he's getting hit very softly and weak pop-ups and all that kind of stuff. I think Santana might be a legit top-end starter for the Twins this well, year. Well, and I know there's probably people out there who are saying, well, if you guys are right in that there's going to be some regression in the near future, just based on the peripherals, then shouldn't they try and quote unquote sell high? Shouldn't you try if this is the peak value? The problem with that notion is all of the teams, including the fans of the teams, have access to this information. So it's so it's not like there's ten teams oblivious to the fact that Irvin Santana has left hey, ninety eight percent guy? of base runners. Who's this on. guy with a one and a half right. ERA? We should try to get him. Yeah. You know, there's always that guy in your fantasy league that you can call, <laughs> right, right. and there and maybe the White Sox are sort of that team now. I know the Braves have been, and the Twins might have been that team. Oh, the Twins will always take the pitch to contact guys. Right. Yeah, go offer up, uh, you know, a couple of prospects or, or whatever. Go offer up your crappy pitch to contact guy and and fleece the Twins. But you know, it's. It's harder to sell high in that classic sense. I feel like when websites 
when when the fan graphs and baseball prospectus when they first came on the scene 10 15 years ago you could be a sneaky smart baseball fan or even a front office maybe there were only 8 to 10 front offices that were looking really deep beneath the surface for why a performance is shaking out a certain way sure when Siyoshi Nishioka hit 350 in Japan in 2010 a lot of teams looked deeper and saw, oh, he had a 400 batting average on balls in play, which is about 70 points higher than where it should be and where his career norm is. So let's not label him as a 350 hitter in Japan. He's probably one like a 290 hitter who got fortunate or hot or unsustainably whatever in 2010. And the Twins were still one of those teams that said, whoa, a 350 hitter batting title in Japan. There aren't any teams that are looking at Irvin Santana like, whoa, Clayton Kershaw. Yeah, right. Right, strikeout rate doesn't match. Walk rate doesn't match. the The batting average on balls in play doesn't match. But he's still a quality pitcher, so don't get me wrong. And let me turn that one step forward too, because you said, yeah, don't you don't necessarily have to cash in your chips. Um, it's not like I mean, the stock I think will go down, but you're not going to get this stock price, right? Like they're looking, other teams are looking to the future of what the stock will cost over the next two years of his contract, possibly three, and they're deciding what they'll pay based on that. But what I will say is, in addition to not having to cash in your chips for that reason, I don't think you have to cash in your chips if you're winning. I don't think there's anything that obligates the Twins to blow it up on July 15th no matter what. I think that if the Central is still up for grabs, the Indians can't figure it out or sustain some injuries, the Tigers haven't like you know corrected course and, and started making some noise in the wild card race. <laughs> I mean, I think the Royals are going to blow it up, and then you look at— Yeah, they have no choice. I, you look at the White Sox. Agents. Some people say, well, the White Sox should be in the same boat. They should be maybe buyers of it. No. The White Sox made that decision this winter. They made the decision that they were blowing this thing up. I'm not saying they have to trade Jose, Jose Quintana, but, like, you traded Adam Eaton. You traded Chris Sale. You've got Michael Kopech coming on the way. Um, Yon Moncada. Like, these are not— pieces to win now these are pieces to be a beast in a couple of years so the white Sox are going to be sellers that's that's not a mystery the twins on the other hand if the central's really that wide open and you can get in this is crazy i'm not saying they're going to win the central but if you're even in the conversation for wild card you don't want to overvalue it you don't want to overvalue the team you have right now and sell parts of the future like um, a caller on on your show the other day mentioned would you trade nick gordon for some pitching hey guys before we continue on with the rest of this touch em all podcast it's phil Mackey here for all of you twin cities area listeners to tell you about luther brookdale toyota 694 and brooklyn boulevard is the location my family and i have been going to this car dealership and service department for three plus decades and there's a reason for that. It's the best in the business, the smartest and friendliest people in the business. They'll treat you like family. So find out why my family and I have been going to the same dealership and service department for multiple decades, right on the corner of 694 and Brooklyn Boulevard, LutherBrookdaleToyota.com. The name that we went to was Chris Archer. Because yeah, yeah, I mean, for whatever reason, Chris Archer was floated around this offseason in, in trade talks. Tampa Bay. That's yeah, why. he's 28 years old. Tampa Bay likes to trade pitchers once they hit the age of 21. Yeah, that's a little bit too old. <laughs> right, yeah. So, sorry, you've, you're, it's, it's like a Olympic gymnast in that's Tampa right. Bay. If you're a pitcher and you reach the age of 21, you become sorry. too old and you're on the trade yeah. block. 
Uh, but Chris over Archer, he has four years left on his deal. Very over the hill, friendly. Chris Archer, yes. If you could trade Nick Gordon for Chris Archer and he well, helps you for the for the remainder of his prime and it's team-friendly, you would pull the trigger yeah, on that. But, but I, not, a, not for a rent-a-pitcher in a season in which you might be fighting for a wild-card spot. Yeah, so this is where it's going to get interesting to me is that you have to evaluate like exactly how good you are and how daring you want to be. I think that's the right word. Like, let's say this team right now has a 10% chance of making the playoffs. And that's optimistic based on some of the fan graphs and all these projections. They're still not giving the Actually, Twins a chance. Actually, I believe Number Fire, I saw, was it Number Fire or 538 has them? Um, it's it's more like 14 or 15%. Okay. All right. Them, so. Well, there you go. Optimism reigns. Mm-hmm. And I would say, all right, if it's a 10% chance, and let's say that's they're Tim still. Rain's son, by the way. <laughs> nice. Future Hall of Famer, Optimism reigns. <laughs> I think if you. If you say that they're in this same spot on July 15th, they're a couple games over 500, they're in control in a wild card, maybe the Indians have sort of taken over the Central by then. I think there are some fans out there who steadfastly believe that doesn't matter, trade Brian Dozier, trade Irvin Santana, load up for next year or the next two, three, five years. I'm not sure I buy into that because if then, if then your playoff percentage is more like 33 or 40%, Maybe you're interested in trading a prospect. Maybe it, you don't want to unload. Put it this way: I think it, it it's it's this simple for the next two months. Unless you're at the point, and you won't be, so it makes it even easier. Unless you're at the point where the core that you've built is a lock for the playoffs, which is what Houston has built now. Yeah. Houston's going to the playoffs. Right. Houston will will not play in a wild card game. Houston's already nine games up in their division, and that's not a fluke. I the Rockies are a fluke. Houston's sure. not a fluke. Sure, The Cubs last year, not a fluke. If, if you've built your core and maybe you supplemented with a free agent in the offseason or a trade, some veteran player, I think you're safe to mortgage a six-year team control guy like a Nick Gordon or even a, a Jorge Polanco or somebody if it helps create a more playoff-friendly roster. If it helps sure. you land in Araldis Chapman, to win a playoff series against the Indians, or, the or almost lose one against the Indians, sure. but but how know. about the Cubs? Wade Davis, you know, they trade a nice young player, Jorge Soler, yep, because they're the Cubs, right? If you're just battling to get into the playoffs, it's not worth the risk to mortgage a five or six year team control guy, a top prospect for, for the rental. chance, yeah, for a rental for the chance at a playoff spot, sure. And even if it's if it's a five game series because you win the division, it's still too much of a crapshoot to me. You should build your core. Build it through trades or uh-huh. drafting and developing and sign a couple. You shouldn't be looking to mortgage future for potential runs in right. September. But I think – so you and I see eye to eye on a lot of these things, and we might disagree here. I, I don't think that it's always very black and white. I, that part we maybe agree on. There's some shades of gray in the middle, but what I what I don't think that I can ever subscribe to is this sort of fatalistic belief – um, and I'll use my NFL example. Um, Collar and I, Matthew Collar, our Vikings analyst, we were filling in on your show one day, and he talked for four straight hours, which, by the way, four hours is a long time to do a radio show. I usually pass out yeah. in hour two, so it's not as I bad. I heard you talking me. about yeah. Nicolas Cage today. So for it's two not straight like, segments, yeah. <laughs> it's not like it's all sportsy sports. Yeah, he was a, a dominating force in the 90s. Not sure if you remember that. No question about that. Um, <laughs> um, 
Well, Nick Cage now has me distracted. But the the point that I was going to make is that Collar and I, we see sports eye to eye for a lot of different things, too. And here's one that we disagree on. He says that if you don't have the quarterback, nothing matters. So don't build a team. It doesn't like don't spend draft picks something. All of your assets need to go into finding Tom Brady or Drew Brees or Aaron Rodgers. And if you don't have one of those guys, forget about it. The rest doesn't matter. That's true. Eighty percent of the time in the NFL, the other 20 percent are generationally good defense. Here was the argument. And this was the debate. Would you rather be right now the um, Kansas City Chiefs or, and our baseball audience doesn't care about this, so I'll get back to my point quickly, but would you rather be the Kansas City Chiefs or the Cleveland Browns? And he says the Cleveland Browns because it's obvious what you have to do. Not true. The Kansas City Chiefs are are ready made to plug in a quarterback. Exactly. They traded up to get Pat Mahomes. Yes. I love the Chiefs. And actually, the Vikings have been the Chiefs a lot in their history. That's kind of where we started. The 2008 Vikings just needed a quarterback. Well, they got one in 2009. And then, of course, he shot himself in the foot in the NFC Championship game. So, yeah. So, back to the baseball part. The baseball. Here's the payoff. Yeah, the baseball. The the, the Twins need Tom Brady. That's what you're saying. (laughs) Even just Tony Romo would be fine. (laughs) No, I think that the, the comparison is that, like, a lot of baseball fans today, I think especially the crowd that I roll with, the stats guys, the you know, the people that view baseball through the prism of math and probabilities and all that stuff, are hell bent on this idea that you're either the Cubs of two thousand sixteen or you're rebuilding. And I don't think that's true because I've just seen enough teams win the World Series in my lifetime that weren't the best team. It just it happens, and I agree. But is it worth the '87 Twins are one of those? But yeah. you and I don't remember that. You were born after, and I was two years old. The '87 Twins popped up after losing 90 games in 1986, and they had a bunch of younger players who had evolved throughout the '80s to to emerge into their primes. So it wasn't it wasn't this young collection that everyone romanticizes about. Herbeck had been in the league for a while. Viola had been in the league for a while. Uh, Puckett had been in the league for a few years. But they and that that was even more difficult because only two teams from each league got to the playoffs right. and they played each other and so it wasn't like the low hanging fruit wild card system we have now where everyone's a contender at that's the why, that's every, why almost everyone can trick themselves into thinking they're a contender. Yeah, that team made one trade in 1987 down the stretch. They traded uh, some nondescript prospect for I believe veteran Don Baylor at the time. Don Baylor was kind of a pinch hitter. Uh, corner guy specialist was not a key cog to that team. They didn't make it wasn't like they traded for an ace caliber pitcher. I thought they the, traded for Steve Carlton that year, didn't they? Uh, they Steve Carlton had a six ERA. Okay. He was at the end of his career and okay. he was not a key piece so it of the puzzle. It wasn't the Steve Carlton. Uh, well, I mean, it was, but, right, it, but, right. but it wasn't. I know what you mean. And, um, and so my, my point is yes, teams, because baseball, teams pop up and win the World Series that you don't. The Marlins did it uh, maybe even a couple times. Twice. But that doesn't mean if you have one of those teams in July, it doesn't mean that it's worth the risk of trading a Nick Gordon for a number two starter for the hope of getting to a coin flip game. So here's where, yes, we're on the same page there. And this is all it's Chris Archer and you have him for four years. Okay, I'm all in. Then there you go. (laughs) I guess that's what I'm saying is that there is this gray area in between where are the twins rebuilding? Yes. I mean, would I trade Nick Gordon right now or... Alex Kirloff, the outfielder who had Tommy John this spring, like, I mean, probably not. I don't think that I would. But if some team wants, um, Jorge Polanco's a bad example, but um, like, 
give me get like uh like you know their fifth best prospect right now. I'm not hanging up and saying sorry, rebuilding. Sorry, rebuilding. We're not trading prospects. We're not in that business. I think that there's only a few teams that should do that, and the White Sox are one of them. You know, we're not giving up Michael Kopech. We just traded for him. Like we're we're gonna hang on to him. Jorge Polanco is a good example because Jorge Polanco is is still young enough. He's still minimum wage in the major leagues. Yeah, you do have Nick Gordon in Double A hitting three fifteen. He yep. is a shortstop. Yep. If he wasn't ready to take over at the end of this year, straight from Double A, you could fill it with Eduardo Escobar. So if if Jorge Polanco was the piece, and then that brings us to the second problem here. There just aren't that many rented pitchers available. Right. Jake Arrieta's a rented pitcher. The Cubs ain't trading him. They're right. contending. That's right. Uh, there's there's so there, I, I want to say that uh, Jeremy Hellickson is a rented pitcher with the yeah, Phillies. Yeah, he's on a one year deal in Philadelphia. So could you would you trade? And and again, is he a key piece to a playoff rotation? Probably not. It's probably your third starter right I, now. Ideally not. So yeah. I just think that uh, maybe we're circling the drain here on this too much, and we should talk about their possible second playoff starter, Jose Barreos, in a second. Um, But that there's not this um, boomer bust. Like it's it's romantic to think about it that way. Like okay, until you get the quarterback, none of this stuff matters. So just put all your resources into getting the quarterback. Don't really agree. How about go draft a nice defensive end who can disrupt the passing game of the other team in baseball? How about Make sure that your third baseman can play defense. Or if not, figure out a contingency plan for who's going to play third when Miguel Sano has to move to first base. I don't think that's the case. I think they're learning that Sano probably can play. How about uh, Jose Barreos? Uh, bullpen, by the way, you're going to have to fix that if you want to be a legitimate contender on July 15th, what we're talking about here. But I don't think it's as cut and dried. And maybe I'm totally wrong here. Or or maybe I'm right and the twins disagree with me or something like that, and they're just going to be cold, calculating, methodical rebuilders. They're going to get to July 15th, be five games over 500, and say, sorry, man, not part of the plan. It's great that we're contending, and Irvin, thank you for boosting your trade value, but you're gone, Dozier gone. Uh, you I know. don't think they would do that. I'm just saying. It's I a- think you have, if you get that far and you're in first place, it doesn't mean you should sell the entire future, but sure. I do think you should give yourself a chance in the final two and a half months to just let baseball be baseball. Yeah. You've already put in that much work to get into that position. Here's why I don't think they're going Unless to. Unless someone really offers a crazy deal right. for an Irvin Santana, which right. would maybe even include a guy who's major league ready that would just Their slot into your rotation. Yeah, next MLB starter. Or like if, you know, if the Dodgers call and they need Brandon Kinsler for something like that, you're not going to be arrogant about it and say, well, we're a playoff team this year. But here's why I don't think Derek Falvey's going to do this. And ultimately, I know Thad Levine's the GM, but if Thad Levine wants to do a move and Derek Falvey says that's not what we're doing here, it's over, right? That's the sense that I get from this is that, like, very collaborative, everyone gets input and people are invited into the room, but then there's one Don at the end that gets to say what's happening, and that's Derek Falvey. He's experienced, to borrow a phrase from you that I like, He's experienced baseball just being baseball. Rewind six months. Where were we? Ah, it's more than six months ago now. We're already in the middle of May. Rewind eight months, and you're seeing the postseason start to get set. We kind of know who the contenders are. Oh, boy, the Indians, yeah, they're a good team, but, boy, it stinks. They're without some of their best pitching. Ah, boy, we'll see what happens against the mighty Red Sox. Mm-hmm. Oh, they swept them. And then they went all the way to the World Series and came within a run of winning the thing. So, like... Derek Falvey has experienced very recently baseball being baseball. I'm not saying the Twins are last year's Indians. I'm definitely not saying they're last year's Cubs. But I'm saying that there's a there's a middle ground where 
hey, maybe you just hang on to your pieces, even if it doesn't maximize future potential value. I'm not sure that the Twins are obviously in the business of building a juggernaut. I kind of think you're one of those teams that has to hope you get good pitching and can build a team around that. They've started to, but their next moves are going to be critical, too. Yeah. Let's spend the, the, the back half of this podcast, or I guess we're way past the first half, so the last part of this podcast, discussing the controversy on social media from Saturday. So Jose Barrios comes up and makes his first start of 2017. He was great. He had command. He got ahead of hitters. He looked much less stressed out on the mound. When he did fall behind, he could throw a strike on 2-0 and or 3-0. and That was a problem for him last year. He was the Jose Barrios everybody was hoping to see when he was called up last year. And I think if he's going to be this guy going forward, it changes the scope of the franchise because now you have a playoff-caliber rotation guy. I don't know if he's an ace. Maybe he's a number two. At worst, he's probably a number three if he's fulfilling his potential as a first-round draft pick. Parker Hageman from TwinsDaily.com who posts a lot of, if you're not familiar, posts a lot of film reviews and looks at hitters' mechanics, and he's, he's a film break-it-down writer for TwinsDaily.com. And he posted video and some photos of Jose Barrios going to the brim of his cap basically whenever he got a new baseball. A little thumb underneath, a little finger on top. There looked to be a dark smudge on sort of the back of the brim that he went to on a regular basis, and he even pulled some video from last season of Barrios doing the same thing. Now... It's undeniable there's a faint smudge up on, and you can't, and obviously it's illegal to put a foreign substance pine tar on a baseball, according to baseball's rules. Now, if you watched video of almost any pitcher in the league, most guys are, watch them. Go look at uh, at uh, Craig Kimbrell, the bill of his cap. There's a, yeah. there's a dark patch the size of a cookie, and he's going to it all the time. Was it just a faded spot on his hat? No. He it dropped was, it in the dirt. Right. Like th- That's what they'll say. Oh, it's dirt and sweat, and that's what Barrio said. Do I think Brios had pine tar on his hat? If I had to gun to the head bet, I would say probably. I don't care, and I'll get to that in a second. Baseball has tried to sort of cover this up to the public, and the league continues to turn a blind eye. The umpires continue to look the other way. And my opinion on this is if Brios had something on his hat that was deemed to be wildly advantageous for the Twins or way over the line, if you're a blogger on your couch and you think you see something and you post something to the Internet, don't you think, and I guess you know you can post whatever you want, but just for fans who are outraged over how could someone have a, a, some pine tar on their cap, if Terry Francona and the Indians front office and the players in that dugout who, are, who have a, has skin in the game, those guys, are, those guys could get fired or released if they perform poorly. If Barrios makes you look bad, you could get fired. That's... Maybe not directly, but you know what I'm getting at. Don't you think one of those guys would have walked out of the dugout, gone up to the umpire, and blown a whistle? But they chose not to because nobody cares, because pitchers want to get better grips on the ball, because hitters want pitchers to have good grips on the ball so that they don't go rogue with a fastball and get hit in the temple somewhere. So I just, I guess to wrap up my point, and then we'll get your thoughts on this, you can... You can blow a whistle on it, and writers have done it, and now there's just more video available, and you can repost video to Twitter, and people can blow whistles. If nobody with skin in the game cares, why should we care? In fact, baseball should just find some way to regulate a nickel-sized small patch of pine tar 
in one spot on your hat so that you can get a better grip on the baseball, or maybe it's some reasonable amount of sunscreen and rosin that you put on your arm, and the umpire checks you when you come into the game just to make sure everything's on the up and up, and we can stop complaining about stuff like this. Your thoughts? Well, I guess I don't know that I have a take on it. Um, I was out this weekend, and then I saw the stat line for Barreos coming back, and I was like, wow, man, this is... You must have cheated. Yeah, no, that's not what I thought. In fact, I was surprised. <laughs> you might, like, we we sort of, we, as especially as uh, writers and, and sports writers and sports talk show personalities and stuff, we sort of, in a weird way, like, do live part of our lives through social media. Like, there's this experiential thing about being on Twitter while watching Game 7 of the World Series. It wound up in the newspapers, too. This wound up yeah, where yeah, yeah. Star Tribune and Pioneer Press beat writers had to talk to Barrios about it. So he's fully aware that this right. is a thing. But yeah. what I mean is that it's interesting to me that, like, I was not aware of this until after the fact I got back and then read about the dust-up yeah. and the controversy and all of that. Um I'm not sure how much it really impacted my opinion of what Barreos did. And, and I guess that's my take on it is that, wow, if that's the Jose Barreos that the Twins are going to get this year, they're in a lot better shape than a lot of outside analysts thought they were. And maybe, you know, he comes back to earth a little bit. That's fine. I, I get that he's not going to always go seven and two-thirds um, and look as good as he did. But the most encouraging thing to me is how often he was around the strike zone how regularly he was able to get ahead of hitters. That's a big thing for this Twins regime. They say, get ahead of hitters and tip counts in your favor. When it's one and one, that's perhaps the most critical pitch of the at-bat. Maybe second, because I think the first most would be the first pitch. Sure. <laughs> if you have a first strike, you kind of win as a pitcher. Versus if you're behind one and oh, now it's an uphill battle. Um, those are two things that were enormously encouraging um, for Braille's. And now here's what this, I can already see this debate happening this summer. I'll, let me just fast forward you in my mind's eye here six weeks. If Braille's dominates, what's the conversation? The conversation on the outside is what the hell were the twins thinking leaving this masterpiece in the minor leagues? It's embarrassing for the first month. You're saying that's right. And I even last not, year, because he was so bad at the end of last year, yeah. There is no way you could justify just giving him a call up right away. Here's the other side to that, which I don't think ever really gets enough credit. Like we get to blame teams when things don't go well, a la Byron Buxton being rushed to the big leagues, but then we don't get to credit them when like the development process turns out well. Well, then it's the player just being talented and good for the player. I think overcame that there's the twins. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's sure. right. Yeah. Um, well, there may I, have been some of that to be told. Totally I'm trying honestly. to think of another example, but like Miguel Sano did sort of overcome the twins pigeon or shoehorning him into right field. Yeah, but sure. also some of that right field mess was his fault too. That's my contention. and I'm sticking to it. The way that I look at player development is that it's kind of a two party thing. You got the player who's invested in his future and you got the team who's also invested in his future. Because if, the first six years of team control are excellent or like the 99th percentile of his ability. Guess who benefits from that? The team that drafted him, the team that promoted him, the team that developed him. So that's the part that I think if Boreos succeeds and is just like this excellent type pitcher and now they've got a one-two punch and if Santiago's your third starter and he keeps pitching like he had been before this most recent start, like, wow, now you actually have a pitching staff when most analysts – thought that you'd have absolutely nothing, be one of the worst pitching staffs in the league, you'd be an afterthought, no one would be talking about the Twins. Here we are on May 16th, 
and we use the word World Series a couple times in this podcast. That shouldn't happen, but it is. It has, and it's currently happening. If Barrios is that guy, I do wonder what the conversation is going to be about. Huh. Boy, the Twins really saw something, that he had something. He wasn't quite ready to make the team out of spring training. And then when we were all pounding our fists on the desk saying, call him up, what are you doing? He's striking out 10 a game in Rochester. He's got a 1.19 ERA in the internationally. What more do you need to see? And maybe the Twins picked the perfect time to call him up. There's nothing wrong with leaving him. If, if, if the plan was a month in the minor leagues and show us something, I'm totally fine with that. No regrets. Sure. Maybe they could have called him up after two starts and he was ready. You know what? If you're going to be that bad in your major league debut last year. You got some y- things to learn. You can spend a month in the minors to start 2017, and then you'll make 25 starts in the big leagues. And hopefully the team and the team, the team team gave him a buffer. You know, if he's really good the rest of the way, well, the team overachieved just as a whole by being four games above 500 when he got the call up. Sure. So I do not fault them at all for leaving him in Rochester for a month to start the season. Yeah, the two things that I'm really going to watch for Barrios in the next start, because I'll get to see his next one, is fastball command, which you know we've talked about ad nauseum. Anyone who thinks that there's a bigger problem than fastball command for Barrios is tricking themselves. They're just, they're just overthinking it. That Barrios, if he can't throw a fastball for a strike, has... Little to no chance that all the stuff in the world can't overcome that problem. You see that time and time again with talented pitchers. What could make Barreos different is if he's now learned that fastball command. And then the thing that I don't think gets talked about enough is his running two-seamer, which is filthy. I watched you know the highlight clip because I didn't get to watch the full game. But you got a left-handed batter on there with the two-strike count, and you throw a two-seamer at his hip. So picture that. You got a lefty standing it, digging in in the box. He knows he's got two strikes. He knows he's got to protect the plate. And he sees a 94 coming at his hip. And he scoots his cleats back and just to kind of get out of the way. And then that fastball darts over the inside corner of the fa- uh, of the strike zone for a called third strike. Forget about it. That's an unhittable pitch for a lot of lefties unless they're sitting on it. That could be a huge weapon for Barreos for the rest of the year. And actually, this is going to be a weird comparison because you don't think of these two guys at all. Just They're just like different sizes and different ages that two seamer he he and he threw it a lot for called strikes and got a couple called strikeouts too in that game on Saturday it reminds me of Bartolo Colon's two seamer at, at, at the same when he was a 23 to 25 year old young ace for the Indians in the 90s early late 90s and early 2000s and he used to backdoor and that was when umpires had their own zones too yep. So it's even easier when you had that pitch and the zones were wider because if you just hit the glove with that two-seamer, even if it was four inches on the inside corner to a lefty, yeah. a lefty's not going to hit that. If he does, it's going to be five, 50 feet foul, yeah, right? Right. And and so, yeah, that's a that's a devastating pitch. And if umpires are giving him even a couple inches on the inside corner there and you got a good framing catcher... Yeah. Good, good luck not breaking your bat if you swing at that. Pitch. Yeah, and the the really unless he gets kicked out for having a glob of pine tar <laughs> on his neck, in which case you know the really intriguing thing to me is that so it's that's called a front door two seamer. Not to get too geeky on you, but like you know if you start it on the side of the strike zone that the hitter is, and then it runs back to the strike zone, it's a front door pitch. And what he can do is then also use it as a back door pitch. Use it on the other side of the strike zone. So to lefties. Start it outside, start it just off the plate with two strikes and see if somebody will chase it as it runs away. Why I think that could work for him is that he's got a changeup that has the same kind of arm side run that the two seamer has. It's I don't think it's as filthy. I, just my eye test. I haven't seen the you know, the numbers to back this up, but that his changeup runs a little and it 
take some velocity off. I actually think it's going to be a pretty good pitch for him. But the two-seamer is, like, hard. It's an aggressive running pitch. And those two, I'm guessing, to a hitter, from a hitter's perspective, whether you're righty or lefty, they look kind of similar coming out of his hand. And if one's going to dip and go 94 and the other's going to kind of fade and be change-up velocity, I... And you're battling from behind in the count. I don't know how you deal with that. So the the pieces are. You got a nail file in your glove, and you're shaving some of the. No, okay. The pieces are there for Barreos to be a really successful pitcher at this level, and that's why I think it was so maddening last year to see him struggle so badly. And uh, you know, if if it works out, credit to Barreos for you know working his arse off and just being this dominant pitcher, having this stuff, but also. Tip of the cap to the Twins for the way they've sort of handled him. Not only the current regime, I, I kind of think the last regime handled him right, too. Um, a lot goes into making a successful pitcher in the big leagues, and if the Twins have found one, they are that much closer to being perennial contenders. I hope he shows up with more pine tar on his hat. I really do.